Hi, my name is Brandon Boat. This is the Theater of Pub Quality podcast that you're listening to. This show is a bit different than what we normally offer in our feed. Typically, we take an interview from one of our live shows where we talk to a smart person about a particular issue, and then a team of improvisers brings it to life using completely unscripted comedy. In this case, however, this comes from a project uh, we call Mayoralapolis, where we're talking to six of the leading candidates in the 2017 Minneapolis mayoral race. We chatted with them uh, about a wide range of different issues, including affordable housing, community and police relations, investments in the city and economic development on the north side of Minneapolis. We wanted to do this to get more in-depth on some of these issues, and we thought it would be a good way for us to figure out who to vote for by sitting down and talking with people individually, so you don't have to. Our guest for this episode is Betsy Hodges. Incumbent Mayor Betsy Hodges is running for a second term, leading Minneapolis. Before being elected mayor in 2013, she served as councilwoman for Ward 13. We talked with Hodges about the complete streets policy adopted during her first term, what she learned from the protest and occupation of the 4th Precinct, and the importance of making conversation with toddlers. Well, uh, hi everyone. My name is Tane Danger. I'm here with Brandon Boat, and we're the co-founders of the Theater of Public Policy. And four years ago, we uh, were able to talk to some of the mayoral candidates who were running for office, including uh, the person who we're talking to today on the show. Um, this time, we wanted to try and be more fair and talk to all of the candidates, and there's not 35 of them, so it's actually potentially possible this time. Uh, so we've been having these conversations, and I'm very excited that today uh, we are talking once again with now current mayor of Minneapolis, Betsy Hodges. So thank you so much for coming and chatting with us. You are very welcome. Thanks for having me. It's always fun. Um, so I've been starting these with just this general question for uh, the other candidates. The, none of the other candidates have been mayor, as you have. So the question for them is just why mayor uh, in terms of, you know, what do they want to do uh, that as mayor that they can't do in some other way, but you're already mayor. So I felt like that question maybe should be reframed for you into more of a, why another term? Like, what do you still want to do? What's, what's sort of, you know, you know, uh, someone extremely generous would be like, yeah, aren't you figured it all out? But no, I mean, why a second term? What is, what does Bitsy Hodges need a second term to do? Well, thanks for the question, Tane. Uh, you know what? Minneapolis is a remarkable city, um, and Minneapolis has some challenges. I am very proud of the work I've done in my first term, and there's a lot of work left to be done. Um, there's a lot left to do. Uh, four years is not enough time to really move that dial on some of our challenges and our growth. And so I am running for mayor so that we can make some headway on reducing the gaps we have between white people and people of color to make sure that um, a focus on workforce and workforce readiness and workforce issues in my second term is going to be really important. Um, our growth is astounding, and it is also bringing with us some challenges we get to manage, including housing and how do we get the right mix of housing um, and the right mix of affordability throughout the entire city. And also knowing that uh, when it comes to public safety, that that work building trust, but also reducing crime, both of which um, have a, have a, we, have, we have some ways to go, and there's a lot of work to be done for a second term for me, and I'm eager to do it. So there were, wow, that was, that was like a good sort of uh, list of, of like all the things that people wanted us to ask about anyway. So, but let's start at, at the beginning, you were saying trying to close some of these economic gaps. Um, 
uh, I, I know in the when you ran four years ago, there was a lot of talk about uh, education as a big piece of that. I'm wondering if you can say a little bit about uh, sort of, again, what programs have already sort of started in the last four years? And then is it just a matter of building on those programs or are there new things in this vein of closing the economic gap in, in the next four years? Well, I would say the answer to that is a yes and. <gasps> She. This is like cheating because she knows that we're improvisers, and so that's just an automatic uh, good answer for us. But uh, well, I suppose that we should see where it goes from here. But yes, Anne, good start. I mean, you know, the mayor doesn't uh, govern the schools, but no one wants to hear their mayor say, "I don't govern the schools." They want their mayor to lead, and that was very clear to me four years ago, the first time that I ran, and. Uh, one of the first things I did as mayor was assemble my cradle to K cabinet Mm -hmm. because the first opportunity gap our students face is are they getting the brain development they need in those first three years 80% of brain development happens by the time a kid is three years old we always find this sort of like a mixed bag between being like you know very important but also like oh crap you're you're four already shoot sorry uh like I, I I don't know like I mean I didn't know that I don't think my parents knew that like they the first three years of my life, they should have had more than just me sitting out by the pool or something. Well, Tane, it's it's clear to me from your verbal patterns that your parents instinctively knew how to develop your brain so that you would have everything you needed to succeed That's in very nice. I, I, my parents don't live in Minneapolis, so they can't vote for you, but if they, I'm sure that that would have helped. Um, Mostly, I was also saying you're chatty. Oh, good. Yeah. yeah. Very chatty. Yeah. So the, very uh, chatty. So uh, chatting. Uh, very important. For, oh yeah, Cradle Decay. That's where we started. Cradle with this. Decay. So, yes. What, what are we doing with Cradle Decay? What is the? I've never told. I mean, to be fair, uh, I know that the cabinet exists. What What does the cabinet do? So it, the the like I said, the first opportunity gap a kid faces is whether or not they get that healthy start, and we can stop future uh, disparities by making sure kids get the healthiest possible start. So low income kids are more likely to hear thirty million fewer words by the time they hit four years old than higher income kids, and that correlates, you know, the the the, the race and class gaps correlate to one another. And so there are three planks for ta- for cradle to K. One of them is every kid stably housed kids do better who have housing than if they don't even if you control for what their level of income is that every kid gets the healthiest start possible and that every kid has access to child development centered child care what does that look like on the ground in year one talking is teaching talking reading and singing a partnership with too small to fail um, which is out of California and they have invested here I'm the first mayor we're the first city to take it on at this level because if you talk and read and sing with kids if you play with kids then and these first early crucial years that's how the brain development happens it's super easy it's super simple anybody can do it and the number one determinant of whether or not a caregiver will talk and read and sing to a kid for child development isn't education or level of income. It's just whether or not they know. So we launched Talking is Teaching. This is the second summer we've had it. You might have seen the wrapped buses that are prompts to talk to young kids. We have these playgrounds in Minneapolis now. Thank you, Landscape Structures in Delano. You have some amazing playgrounds that you put together for, for, for young people. 
um, which are prompts for caregivers to talk, read, sing. Prompts like, like conversation prompts? Like, yeah, you know, like ask just... your kids about the situation in Turkey or uh, something? Yes, 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 yes. You know, talk to your kids about North Korean policy when they're two yeah. years old. That's Actually, narr- narrating, narrating what you do. You can read a book. If you're tired of reading the book, just describe the book in your own words. Um uh, the prompts are, you know, you're at the playground. And these are kids who are early verbal or sometimes yeah. pre-verbal. It is still important to talk and read and sing to them. Narrate what you're doing. Hey, I'm doing the dishes now. Isn't the water make a fun noise? Yeah. Whatever it is. Yeah. Um, just talk and read and sing to, so, to your kids. And it's like a good excuse to if you're somebody who naturally is just, you know, talking to yourself. Now, if you have like a child with you, it's like socially acceptable. Yes, or if you are used to talking to your cats, for example. Yeah, exactly, which I, I yeah, George is my cat, and I do talk to him. So uh, so that's one plank. How do we know if that's working? Uh, I mean, it's only happened for one year, so it's hard to probably test yep. like a one-and-a-half-year-old. Well, we are in year two. Uh, one of the things, one of the planks of Cradle to K is make sure that young people at age three are getting the assessments that they need um, to make sure that they're on track for their development, um, to be ready for kindergarten in a, you know, in a year after that. And so we've actually already... That was my phone making noise. No, that's I I assume it's not it's not City Hall is like on fire or anything. No, City Hall is not on fire. It was a reminder to me to make sure that we're standing up against hate. But that's a whole other story. Do you have a regular reminder on your phone like stand up against hate? Oh yeah, it's no. There there is something that I um, asked to have happen, and that was a reminder to me to make sure that that had happened. Okay, good. Yeah. Wow, that's a good. uh, So um, I I I I really am interested. So uh, the Cradle Decay, we've talked a little bit about the uh, the verbal piece. Um, I actually want to sort of dig into this because one of the things a lot of folks asked us and actually has become, I think, a big theme of the whole campaign has been affordable housing yes. and whether Minneapolis has enough of it because we are growing. And I think folks uh, are rightly sort of questioning, are we making the investments in affordable housing that we should? Or do we have the policies that can make that happen? So uh, I... I guess that maybe that's even just where I would start. Are we doing enough in terms of affordable housing? One of my basic principles is that as human beings, there are four things that we come together to provide one another. You know, when we come together at community, it's food, it's clean water, it's medical care, and it's shelter, it's housing. And so... um, that's why I've had such a focus on housing my entire career, even before I was an elected official. And um, uh, I actually met my husband the first time when he was walking out of a meeting with then Commissioner Gail Dorfman, and he was head of um, planning and development at Hennepin County, and they were having a meeting about creating the Affordable Housing Incentive Fund at Hennepin County. Wow, romantic. Many, many years ago. Oh, yeah. this was long before we started dating, but it was the yeah, first time Yeah, but you knew uh, maybe at that, like, oh. Nope, ne- sure didn't. Gail sure Dorfman didn't. had to, you know, play matchmaker or something. No, sure didn't. Okay. Uh, that was just a little anecdote that I threw in there. You're welcome, podcast listener. Um, But for housing in Minneapolis, we are losing units faster than we can create them. And we aren't even necessarily in, you know, previous... You mean affordable housing units? Yes, affordable housing units. We are losing affordable housing units faster than we can create them. And uh, so I've put a lot in place 
you know, in my time as mayor to address some of the key issues that we're facing. And as we move forward, there's more to do. And we know, and you know, I'll do it because I've been doing it. So for example, I've invested the first dollars in a naturally occurring affordable housing strategy in Minneapolis to join uh, dollars at the state level. Um, Meaning investing in housing that is currently affordable and allowing the people who own it to stay there, to invest in that housing, to not sell, um, to be able to, to keep that housing affordable over time, that's a much lower investment to keep the same payoff of a, a continued affordable housing investment. So is that fun to preserve? And we should identify, like naturally, afford, uh, naturally occurring affordable housing. Noah. Wow. Uh, we... Uh, that is when you have housing that is uh, at a price point that people uh, can afford. I've, I've had some conversations with folks who say that it's very important to preserve that yes. because we basically can't create it anymore. Like it's very difficult, if not impossible, it's, to create uh, affordable housing that isn't highly subsidized somehow by... Uh, well, exactly. Yeah. It's, it's far more uh, costly to create a new unit of affordable housing in Minneapolis than it is to make an investment in housing that's already affordable to keep it affordable. And so I've invested in that so we can maintain our affordable housing stock. Can you give us some, like, do, how, like how much? Like, or the general, you did, she brought notes to an improv comedy show, but that's good. Uh, this isn't an improv comedy show. It's a conversation about that's policy. That's Fair enough, Tang, fair enough, right? fair enough. But this is good. Yes, this, and. Yes, yes and. and. It's, impo- it's improv and and you're prepared and uh, i'm prepared for yeah it. it's a yes and i'm trying to find that number for you but it may be i'm gonna just uh somewhere. guess while you're looking uh brennan and i will randomly i guess. think it's 1.5 uh, million dollars uh she says 1.5 million i'm gonna say uh 38.50 because it's like prices right rules where if you're closer without going over so, so you just went to the lowest number that you could I should have of. just done $1, like yeah. what they do when they're on prices, right? Yeah, thirty-eight fifty is a bit odd. Because what if it turns out that it's 38 and then I'm over? Yeah, I'm going to go with 38. It's $1.5 million. Okay, well, good, shoot, okay. It's $1.5 million in naturally occurring affordable housing. But what I also found is that when we, when we were investing in housing, uh, the way we had structured the affordable housing trust fund, uh, the cities, not the counties, uh, it wasn't allowing us to build the kind of housing we needed, which is larger units, mm-hmm. uh, more higher bedrooms, more number of bedrooms um, for people who are at a lower level of, you know, who mm-hmm. are in higher levels of poverty, I guess is the way to put it. You know, I would talk, especially with Somali families who would say, you know, we need four or five bedrooms. You know, we have three or four kids and we're living with my mother and we just need, mm-hmm. and, and the way the affordable housing trust fund was was constructed, we couldn't actually invest in that kind of housing. And so I did the organizing work to talk throughout the housing advocacy community mm-hmm. who was very invested in the Affordable Housing Trust Fund to say, I'm going to be investing in affordable housing. I'm not going to put the money directly in the trust fund so that it can go for larger family housing for communities that need it most. Um, because the, one of the biggest issues we have remaining with homelessness are larger families. 
and I did that. Now we've restructured the Affordable Housing Trust Fund. You can there there are ways to do it, but at the time it was very controversial. I got opposition, um, but we did it, and now and we were successful because now over at Thirty Eighth and Minnehaha there are some uh, affordable housing units going in for larger families, which I'm very very excited about. And so that's the track record that I have, and moving forward. You know, we get to build on that work. I mean, I've invested in my time as mayor um, uh, over $40 million in affordable housing in the last three years, and I'm going to propose this year's budget uh, in September. Um, But there's more to be done. How do we create the right incentives for uh, mixed-income neighborhoods throughout the entire city? We want to make sure to drive our our density where the transit is, where people are. That helps keep those clashes with the neighborhoods to a minimum. Uh, And that provides opportunity to create affordable housing throughout the entire city when we're doing it on our transit networks. But I also want to make sure that the people who helped build our neighborhoods and make them so great can stay in those neighborhoods once we started investing in them. Because we also have our 20-year Parks and Streets investment plan, and we're going to be investing in uh, neighborhoods all across the city, including and especially neighborhoods that have been left behind in terms of investment. And I want to make sure what tools do we need to have in place so that people who have helped build these neighborhoods can stay in them once um, values start going up. And that's a question about zoning and what kind of zoning we do as we do our comp plan. That's a question about what sort of incentives do we put in place as we're looking at housing. Uh, Every tool that we have in our toolbox, what do we do? So uh, affordable housing uh, throughout the city, uh, more density also throughout the city pretty much everywhere or uh, only in certain places? This is another thing that we got a lot of folks asking about in terms of uh, everybody seems to be able to agree to uh, we should have more housing, more density in certain places. <laughs> and then it's sort of this question of like, okay, where are those places and where are not those places? Well, and that is a that is a value that I hold as well. I want there to be 500 people in Minneapolis. There were fewer than 400,000 when I, think I started. I 500,000. You 500, you said Did 500, I say 500 people. That would be dramatic. That, that is be... that is that is the that is the wish of some but not me. Yes, okay. 500,000. Yes, okay. We were below 400,000 when I took office as mayor. We're now at about 420,000. And uh we're on our way. You know, we're still growing. But where we want to drive that density first is in the place, in those transit corridors, in those places where you expect density. First of all, it allows for more affordability because people can live car-free or car-light as we build out our transit network. And that's helpful because people don't object to the density of people. They object to the density of cars. And so if we can create you know, if we can bring more people here without bringing a car for every person. But people don't, they, I, I, I think that uh, that's what people would say that they don't agree or that they don't like the density of cars. But nobody, you know, when you say, oh, but these people are going to be living uh, near transit so they won't need cars. Nobody believe, or not nobody, but a lot of people just don't believe that. I'm not saying that there won't be more cars, but if you... Uh, I'm a big believer for our growth in public investment in the public good. We've been investing in our bikeways. I'm very proud of that and the work that I've done there. Investing in transit, doing a lot of work in my entire career to make sure we have the transit network that we need. That we uh, now are on the cusp of a revolution in complete street redesign, right? We have a complete streets policy. I hired Robin Hutchison, who's a great public works director. Ask anybody. Uh, And... 
and we invested in the parks and streets investment plan. So we're actually going to be building out our streets to our complete streets policy. And the primary and and the primary consideration in a complete in our complete streets policy is building things for pedestrians and people with disabilities first, and then cyclists and transit riders second, and cars third. To make sure that we are building a city that people want to be in and that people can get around easily in all modes and all formats. And that, when you're doing that globally, it means you're creating a city where people don't have to live with a car. They can live car free. They can live car light. And that's what's happening in urban areas all across the country and it's what people want. And so if we create that, people are living uh I think there are people in this room with personal experience with people who are living car free or car light. And as that, as that happens, it's easier to create density with less, um, uh, consternation with less disagreements, uh, with people, because then you're talking, not, you're not as much talking about parking spots as you are talking about housing. And if you drive it along those transit corridors, you're putting it in the places where people expect, in the places where people want it, in the places where you get all those, uh, the great things that happen when you put people together and, and businesses like it, because then they'll invest there. And it's an upward spiral of growth, Uh, It's an upward spiral of prosperity for the city as long as we're making sure to do it with everybody in mind, not just middle and upper income people in mind. So that if we allow for affordable housing, that if we allow for uh, mixed income neighborhoods, which make everybody happier, by the way, um, everybody prefers living in a mixed income neighborhood. That's how you can get density and growth in the city. We're not talking about building skyscrapers in the middle of Kingfield. um, And so that. That question, though, just to try and put a button on this piece of that, that there is that tension often between a vision that a city has of we want to get to 500,000 people or whatnot. And, you know, what's shorthanded is like not in my backyardism of just like, yes, that's great somewhere else. So I'm just uh, there's there's it just seems like. Uh, it's easy for us to sort of talk about it here, but we both have sort of been out there and, you know, know that there are people who are really against almost anything. Except I was a council member for eight years. I've been mayor for four. Um, I have been through the trenches with getting projects done in neighborhoods. And I know that there are tensions anytime you have a project in specific as opposed to a vision in general. And that's why having a transformational leader like Betsy Hodges as mayor is a good thing. Because I know how to take something from a great vision where we all say we want something to the nitty gritty of how do you actually get that done in the face of resistance, in the face of people not liking it and not wanting it because... Growth is one place you find it. Doing equity work is another place you find it. The resistance comes in many forms, and you have to be able to sit there with people, address each issue piece by piece, and get through to another side. And you know that I know how to do that because I've gotten results my entire career that look just like that, whether it is getting... Um, you know, reform of our closed pension funds that was costing taxpayers millions and millions and millions of dollars. Um, I was told very early in my career by um, uh, some uh, men members of our legislative delegation, they who essentially patted me on the head and said it would never happen. And I very tall, 
people that j- they were just patting you on the head because it was like the only thing they could reach because they were like 12 feet. No, no, they were resting their drinks on my head. Oh, wow. These were other these were other legislators talking about pensions, not quite that tall, okay. uh, who were like, yeah, this won't happen, and why are you ruining your career? And it took six years, but it only took six years, and we got that pension reform done. And it saved $20 million on the levy for Minneapolis taxpayers in 2012, and the pensioners got every benefit that they were promised. Uh, I've got it. So, but I'll just say, I know how to do transformative work that people resist and get things done. I could give you dozens of examples. So let's say another piece, and and I think that it's a good segue from here, is we had folks asking, obviously, about like the north side and that the investments that are needed on the north side are different than maybe what they look like in certain places. And particularly, as you even were just alluding to, how do you do that? How do you help the north side uh, grow and become more equitable and pros- uh, prosperous without displacing folks who are already there? How do you uh, empower that community to raise itself up? And so uh, I- I'm curious where you feel like you are in that and then what exactly you need another four years to do for that kind of work? Well, the great thing about the North Side is, first of all, the people. There are extraordinary, strong and resilient people there who have been doing great work making sure the needs of their neighborhoods and their blocks are known by City Hall, are known at the state level, are known at the federal level. Uh, just some extraordinary people there. And I have long said we until north minneapolis is leading the way of our growth and prosperity we are not the city that we need to be like that's going to be a sign to me um but it's only going to be that sign as you said if the people who have done such great work making the north the great stuff about the north side what it is if they can stay there as other people realize how great uh, a set of neighborhoods there are up over north and how great opportunity what great opportunities there are over north and so that's why i pursued a promise zone designation for north minneapolis one so we convened so we could get everybody together to talk about the north side we can i convened 200 people um over north to put together the plan the long-term plan for uh north minneapolis for the promise zone uh, application um, the first time I met President Obama and, and talked to him at any length, and he was going around asking us what our vision was for the city, I talked at a very high level about a vision for equity, and I said, and we have a Promise Zone application in at HUD, and we would love to get that designation, which we didn't get that round, but we did get the second <laughs> round. Uh, I just had a curiosity. Uh, what, what was your uh, first conversation uh, with President Trump uh, like? I assume that you've been invited to the White House just as often. Uh, you know, the conversations I have with Donald Trump are more one-sided. Yeah. And they involve words that you don't have on your podcast. Okay. Fair enough. So going back to the North side, um, uh, so Promise Zone was, was one piece. Uh, again, I, I kind of am so what, what, but, what does it look like on the ground? But, but what that means is, but the reason I brought up the Promise Zone is yeah. because I brought the entire community together. I helped facilitate the community coming together to generate the plan for what they wanted regarding public safety and education and economic development um, and, and quality of life. And, and we are working to make that real. I mean, there, we get, there's a whole bunch of stuff you get with the Promise Zone. Um, 
I mean, right now there's 120 million dollars worth of economic development projects that are coming to the north uh, that are in or coming to the north side. 76 million dollars in new housing development underway on the north side. There's investment happening. Um, which one of those investments is going to be the key, sort of the the, the fulcrum on which mm-hmm. the tides of, that's a mixed metaphor, that's a terrible mixed metaphor, the fulcrum on which um, the fortunes of, of the north side will turn, I don't know which one it's going to be. But it can't be any one thing. And so the, the public safety initiatives that we've done there, it can't just be law enforcement creating public safety anywhere. Uh, we get further if it's a collaboration with community, which is why I invested $250,000 on West Broadway as well as $250,000 in Little Earth for the community to decide, here's how we would like to uh, take more, here's how what we would like to do to promote public safety in our neighborhoods. That's one of the things that I heard um, in the wake of, of, of Jamar Clark's death and the 18-day occupation of the grounds of the 4th Precinct was people saying, we want to take more responsibility for public safety in our neighborhoods. And I invested over a million dollars in community-based strategies, including the one where I said, you guys come up with the ideas, you guys decide which of those ideas to pursue, and you guys pursue them. And that's what's been happening this what summer. Are, what, I'm just curious what some of those are that have you feel like are, are working, that are going well. Well, you know, we, I mean, the, the dollars went out the door in mid-June, and we are now in mid-August. And so we are going to, but there are assessment measures in place. Uh, some of them were, act, you know, artists activating times and places on on West Broadway that they know are busy for people. Some of it is um, doing outreach to people who are um, likely uh, members of groups like gangs or cliques um, to talk to them. Uh, there's also the group violence intervention strategy, which I funded, which isn't which isn't part of that that yeah. neighborhood based investment, but that also is community led. You know, I and Mike Freeman and the police chief and and local, um, you know, local neighbors who've been affected by group violence, gangs or cliques or blocks or guys running around the neighborhoods together um, and guys who've been in groups and are out of them now getting together and saying to statistically, we know who is the likely the next shooter or the next person shot. And we got a group of them together and said, look, we love you. And your next stop is a casket or a jail cell. And we'd rather have you here with us. We would rather have you in the community. We want your life to go well. And we will invest in anything it takes to get your life on the right path. And we will do what it takes. And here's a guy. And here's a phone number. If you want to change your life, call this number. If you don't, the next time a body drops, we're going after not just the shooter, but the entire group. So please take that message back to your group. And guys have been calling and guys have been getting services. Mm. And in cities that have done it with real fidelity to that method, have decreased violent crime anywhere up to 60%. And that's what I mean. You know, we I've, I've been working to move the center of gravity on public safety away from just law enforcement to law enforcement and community together. Because that helps build trust, but it also creates far more public safety. It also helps reduce crime levels and and helps people's lives go better to a far greater degree. I want to talk. I, I definitely want to talk more about public safety uh, and whatnot. But I don't want to. Uh, uh, I don't want to leave the conversation about the north side without uh, also sort of talking about this the economic piece because public safety is obviously a huge piece of yes. this. And then so, but uh, a lot of folks say okay, and there's a huge opportunity gap. Yes. So where the, the where's the 
wheel on that to turn? I mean, the the reason that I brought up public safety is because the folks who are doing economic development work up there are very clear that one of the key things they need for economic development to be successful is for there to be uh, safety for the for for people on the north side, and we want that just because we want that. We want every neighborhood to be safe. Um, but in North Minneapolis, it is one of the pieces for economic development. Like I said, there there's you know almost two hundred million dollars worth of investment happening on the north side right now, which is great. But we also want to make sure we are matching opportunity uh, with the people who need those opportunities, and that's where the workforce initiatives that I've been working on come in. Um, asking, I've been sitting down with um, the CEOs of some of our largest employers and sitting down with the chancellor of Minsku and sitting down with um, um, the president of MCTC uh, to talk about what are gonna, what are specifically to one company or another, what are your workforce needs going to be in five or ten years? And then, uh, and St. Thomas is, is willing to help with this too, what curriculum can we put together in the post-secondary world to make sure that we have what, you know, people can get the training that they need to meet those jobs of the future? And then I'm also working with Minneapolis Public Schools to say, what curriculum can we put in place that mm-hmm. will prepare people to take advantage of these opportunities so that it is a, you know, a stem to stern? Because I want Minneapolis Public School students. I want folks on the north side. I want anybody who's unemployed and looking for work, I want them to be able to take these jobs that we're going to have 130,000 job shortage in the next five years in this region. We know that. I want the people who don't have jobs right now to be in a position to take those jobs. So it's a question of training. Um, But it's also a question of for a lot of people, and this is true whether it's in public safety or cradle to K or the workforce initiatives, that the impact of trauma on people's lives is having an impact on whether or not they um, can learn the skills needed, whether or not they have the soft skills needed for job preparation. So I have built the reality that there are a lot of people who have experienced trauma into all the work that I'm doing. And as a trauma survivor myself who knows what a hindrance it is uh, uh, to bear the impact of trauma and how much it opens up your world when you um, are healing from trauma or have healed from trauma, I know how important that is. And so that's going to be an important piece as well. We got a recast grant um, to, that we're spending $5 million on the north side for communities that have been impacted by police violence and the trauma that has come from that. And, and spending it how? Like, uh, what, is that, what does that look like? And so that, that means um, uh, working with some great folks out of North Point, working with some great independent folks, um, working with the police department, working with the health department, but mostly working with community, um, acknowledging that there is a history of trauma and what do people need to heal from that, mm. putting groups together, putting services together, putting communication together, and really getting in there with people so people can do some healing. That's been important. And again, that was another message that um, I heard loud and clear um, in the in the demonstrations that happened in the wake of the Jamar Clark shooting, especially, that there is trauma in the community and that needs to be addressed. So... This is this has also been uh, another huge piece of the campaign so far. Uh, is this conversation around policing and uh, and I mean, it is a lot of the criticism uh, that other folks have have leveled at you. And I, and I'm just curious if at this point you have things that you would say like uh, I would do this differently or I uh, I've learned this and so the next four years will be different this way when it comes to 
uh, things that happened around the fourth precinct occupation or Mm -hmm. with the. You know, the, you know, Jamar Clark's death, the shooting of Jamar Clark, um, as well as the demonstrations that happened outside the fourth precinct for 18 days after that, that was an incredibly searing moment for the city of Minneapolis. It was awful that it happened. Um, um, and it also brought to the fore so many issues that the community, uh, communities of color in particular, have been facing for generations. It brought it to the fore for everybody in Minneapolis, including white people. Um, there has been a redistribution of discomfort, um, and discomfort is a mild word for what communities of color have been saying and experiencing around policing for generations. Um, and that redistribution is good. You know, that white people are now uncomfortable and feeling urgent around policing is important because it means that we're all in this together and that we are all looking for solutions and we want to move forward. Now, change is uncomfortable for everybody. But the disruption that happened, to get to your question, the disruption that happened allowed me to move forward an agenda around 21st century policing, around transforming how we, poli- how we police and how the police department interacts with communities of color, allowed, allowed me to accelerate the pace of that work that I was doing um, with a city council that has a functional majority um, that doesn't always want these sorts of changes to happen, um, including one of my opponents. And What kind um, of changes don't they want to happen that you do want to happen? There was resistance. For example, there were lots of conversations about body cameras and lots of questions about was it worth the expense and would it do what we said it would do and all that sort of thing. And they are, an, they are not an infallible tool. We have certainly seen that, but they are an incredibly important tool regardless. Um, But, you know, I was able to accelerate the pace of training, procedural justice training, implicit bias training, um, crisis intervention training. Every Minneapolis PD officer has been through those, and they were by the end of um, 2016, beginning of 2017. We had done all of that. We were able to change policy. You know, we have a sanctity of life policy. Historically, in every police department, the sanctity of life policy has been every officer goes home safe at the end of the day. And now the sanctity of life policy in Minneapolis is everybody goes home safe at the end of the day. We have a duty to intervene and duty to report policies now in the Minneapolis Police Department. If you're an officer and you see someone behaving badly, you have to intervene and you have to report it or you're in trouble too if we find out about it. And we're more likely to find out about it because now every officer that responds to 911 calls has a body camera and um, uh, we now have stronger policy around around those body cameras and when they need to be on but it has already helped us know uh, what's happened in certain key situations where we would not have had that that set of data it's a tool it's not the only tool and so we were I was able to accelerate the pace of that work moving forward now you asked about the lesson that I learned um, I sat down with dozens of people in the wake of the the occupation of the 4th Precinct grounds. Um, dozens of people, some of whom I knew were not supportive of me, who did not appreciate um, how I handled things, but I knew I, I knew I would appreciate their thinking and their perspective and that they would be respectful. And um, I got a lot of great input and advice uh, from a lot of different people and asked the Department of Justice to come in and do an assessment of Mm -hmm. how did we do as a city. Um, And the theme from all of those things was about communication. 
And I'm not waiting till my second term to change, to make changes based on feedback that I've gotten. I'm already communicating differently. And, you know, we had the horrific death of Justine Damon um, this summer, and people saw a difference in how I communicated in the wake of that. Um, not because uh, of any difference in who she was or who the officer was or where it happened, but because I had been taught a lesson by the people of Minneapolis. They had given me feedback, and I had taken it in. I had metabolized it, and I, and I, and I communicated more and differently and better. To try and just put a, a bit of a point on that, I mean, part of that Justice Department report was a breakdown, uh, or not breakdown, my, I don't, maybe they used the word breakdown. I'll use the word breakdown. Of they didn't use the word breakdown. Um, uh, there's there's tough communication between you and then Chief uh, Harto, and I'm wondering is that was that uh, a unique thing to that relationship, or is it more of a general thing that you've changed how you communicate with some of the folks in the administration generally in uh, the city uh, beyond just that one case? Well. To the top headline of that report, like the overarching theme of that report was actually that we as a city um, successfully did something no other city had done, which is we had that kind of incident, we had that, that set of demonstrations, but we didn't have widespread property damage in Minneapolis. We didn't have people all through the city um, uh, doing widespread destruction and property damage because we were doing something new and different. We were doing... 21st century policing. We were applying the principles of police, you know, of the transformation of policing that we would want to a situation where no city had had done that before. Um, And we did it successfully and we did it well in the service of trying to get, you know, trying to get a peaceful resolution um, to the occupation, but also wanting to make sure that people had the ability to express their First Amendment rights um, but making sure that everybody was also being as safe as we could make them. Um, and that was what was in my mind every day. And so, yes, there were times when it wasn't clear uh, when we were doing something new and different. And mm-hmm. so it wasn't always a by the book, do this, do that, do the mm-hmm. other thing. If we were doing do this, do that, do the other thing by the book, we would have just arrested everybody on the first day, let there be huge uprisings, and then and then go from there. But that's not what I wanted to do. It isn't what the chief wanted to do. Uh, we did something different. Now, in that report, they talk about uh, there were these different communication structures put into place. And in the report, they say they say incorrectly um, that I put together a communication structure that I didn't invite the police to. And that's just not true. Um, uh uh, the city coordinator put a communication structure together, and the police were invited from the from day one. Actually, uh, acting Chief Arredondo, soon to be Chief Arredondo, uh, was one of the people invited from the very beginning to that. And so, were there stresses and strains in communication between me and Chief Harto? Sure, right. We are people working together, building a relationship through working together under very trying times. Um, but that sort of um, systematic breakdown in communication yeah. that was inaccurate. But, uh, and I just go back to sort of the original question, which is just, I mean, and it's sort of the whole question of this, you know, uh, there's been a lot of folks who want to relitigate those different pieces. My bigger question is that, like, taking away the uh, what changes? So, you know, hopefully nothing like that happens again, but there will be other uh, crises or tension points. So what what looks different in sort of the way that you approach it or the communication that happens? Or, or maybe uh, it doesn't necessarily look different. Uh, I, I'm just trying to well, figure that I, out. Well, I mean, but I, but I think I did try and answer that question. Yeah. I mean, I... I, I 
I learned some lessons from that that I hoped never to use again. I never want to, I never, ever want to have to learn the lessons of what do you do after a terrible officer-involved shooting. Mm -hmm. Um, And unfortunately, we had another terrible officer-involved shooting, and people got to see that I had learned those lessons Mm -hmm. already. My communication was different. It was, I mean, people, rightly or wrongly, uh, people expressed to me that they wanted to know how I felt. And there's a gender component to that, certainly, but it doesn't mean people don't want to know. And so I I communicated to people how I was feeling about what happened more than I had before. That uh, people wanted to know what I was doing and how I was spending my time. So I made sure to communicate that out on a regular basis. And then to the extent that we had information that we could share... Um, I shared that information and gave updates, um, both about the case itself, although it was an independent investigation, so I have very little information about that, but about, um, you know, they're gonna be, there's going to be a gathering here, or here's, you know, uh, here's, here's what we know. Any information yeah. that I could have, I shared. And people saw that that was different. Now, people were, some people um, noticed that difference and attribute it to other things. And I would say that difference was purely because I spent a lot of time asking people how, you know, what is the big thing that I should have learned from uh, the death of Jamar Clark and the, and the occupation of the 4th Precinct grounds. And the theme of that was communication. And I have, I've learned that lesson. There were other things as well about policy changes, um, other things about um, how we're going to do things differently. And now we have a new police chief, and he has ideas about how we're going to both ingrain the changes that have already happened in mm-hmm. the police department, but also how what are we going to do differently moving forward. And I look forward to working with Chief Arredondo on that. So you set up my next piece uh, beautifully, which is just I wanted to ask. Uh, you, we've talked a bunch here about communication, but again, uh, a lo- another theme that a, a lot of folks have brought up uh, has been this idea, oh, um, Minneapolis mayor is a weak mayor, and so a big part of their job is to be like the cheerleader or spokesperson for the city. And then, even as you sort of like highlighted there, I've had other folks who point out like, yeah, that's just sort of subtle sexism to say like uh, basically what they're saying in not so explicit terms is we want like a strong guy mayor to be like the the person who's sort of the image of our city. And so I'm wondering, when you hear that, when you hear, oh, we want a strong cheerleader for our city, do you hear that as sexism, or is that uh, is that a fair ask? It is the role, one of the roles of the mayor is to make sure that we are, that I am promoting the city, that I am talking about what's great about the city of Minneapolis, that I show up to celebrate the things that are worthy of celebration in Minneapolis, and they are legion. We're an extraordinary, extraordinary city. And I have played that role well. I am, you know, I go to ribbon cuttings, I um, am... You know, I, I, we have a tourism master plan now to Do make sure. Do we have sure. a big scissors as a city? Yes, okay, yes, good. yes. We have, we have, we have, we have, we have big for scissors for ribbon yeah. cuttings. Every ribbon cutting seems to have its own. I'll point out some smaller cities have to share their scissors with other cities, but Minneapolis, we have our own big scissors. But we're willing to share. Okay. We're willing That's to nice. share. I mean, if we're going to have a fiscal disparities pool, we might as well share scissors across sure. the region, too, That's for good. our ribbon cuttings. For our ribbon cuttings. That's a role that I, I love playing, and I'm, I'm excited to play. Um, you know, we have a tourism master plan um, now, as I mentioned. 
Um, because one of the biggest things about us is we're so great and it's hard for people to know. Hashtag brag Minneapolis, which people like to use cynically or they, sarcastically. They but we also get to use real in a real way. Like there are many great things about us. That is 100% true. And I celebrate that all the time. Um, so is there a gender component to calling for the mayor to be a cheerleader and having that be a campaign platform? Yes. It's also a realistic thing to want your mayor to do. But often I think when people are talking to me about, uh, uh, you know, I want, you know, they, they want, or not talking to me, but talking around me about it, we, you know, you need to be more of a cheerleader. I think often what they mean is stop talking so much about Minneapolis's challenges. If you were a real cheerleader, you wouldn't talk about the fact that we have inequities in the city all the time. And there's no way that a responsible mayor in the 21st century facing the level of racial and economic disparity we have in the city, knowing that our future prosperity depends on reducing and eliminating those disparities, there's no way a responsible mayor cannot talk about those issues um, and talk about them consistently. You know, it's a, it's a nerd thing, but Niels Bohr, the scientist, had this concept of profound truth, a truth whose opposite is also true. Light is a wave and light is a particle. You cannot understand light without talking about both of those things. Minneapolis you, is a wave and a particle. Minneapolis is a wave and Minneapolis is a particle. Minneapolis is an extraordinary city. We have the best park system in the country. We have the best people in the country. We're a cosmopolitan city. Um, our improv scene is extraordinary. Oh my it's really god! Really trying hard uh, here to win this interview. We uh, are an extraordinary city. That is one hundred percent true. We are second to none in so many of the great things people love, and we get to celebrate that. But it is also one hundred percent true that we are deeply challenged, especially when it comes to issues of race, and especially when it comes to issues of equity. That is also 100% true. And if we are going to be the great city of the 21st century that we can be, both of those things have to be on the table and discussed. And I think when people are challenging me to be more of a cheerleader, what they're really saying is stop talking about our challenges so much. Um, uh, so a couple last things in our in our last few minutes here, I've been asking. Uh, one of the things I'm interested in uh, is this question of Minneapolis being a leader in a lot of ways, uh, whether it's, you know, things to brag about or in trying to address challenges, uh, it are really important. I think some folks wonder, though, we're, we're part of this larger region, obviously. And so, like, uh, how does how does Minneapolis balance, you know, being a leader and yet also trying to tie in uh, and bring along or work with that larger region? And what's the role of the mayor in in very practical terms in building the relationships to make that happen hashtag regionalism hashtag region that i the kids catch on to that one um yeah almost as good as pointer gate right i am very proud of being a good regional partner you know i'm proud to have the support of many uh mayors throughout the region and throughout the state um, because we've worked together on some key things and they know that i can be a really good partner um, it's one of the reasons I support Greater MSP, which is our regional development organization. I believe it's important to sell ourselves as a community and as a region. If a business is thinking about investing here, they're not always thinking about investing in Minneapolis proper. Sometimes right. they're just saying, is this a place where I want to tell my employees it's good to go? Right. And 
um, yes, I want everybody to invest in Minneapolis, but I know that's not realistic. And I want people to invest in this region so that they can come spend all their money in Minneapolis. So are there like policy Because one of the ones that comes up very like pointedly with this is minimum wage, where even you've said like it'd be, it would have been better if probably we could have done minimum wage as a regional thing. So how then do we move forward with that? Minneapolis is moving forward with a $15 minimum wage. So, you know, do you just keep heckling the mayor of St. Louis Park until uh, they start to raise it? I'm, I, how does that Jake, work? Jake, if you're listening, call me. Um, yes, I have always had a hesitation about Minneapolis being the only one in the region who raises the wage to 15. It's why I was pursuing a regional minimum wage at the legislature, uh, a seven-county metro area minimum wage increase. Um, I was talking to legislator, legislators from all across the metro area. Actually, Frank Hornstein and Scott Dibble put the bill in to their credit. But I also knew when the election happened, when Trump became president, and we not only didn't get um, the House, but we lost the Senate here in Minnesota, that uh, the path to a regional minimum wage was much narrower and that Minneapolis was going to move forward. And we, you know, I wanted to make sure that we did it right if we were going to do it. And so, um, and so we passed it in Minneapolis, but the day we passed it is also the day work began or continued to make sure that we have other cities in the region that are doing the same thing. And there are some who are interested who are more likely to do it now that Minneapolis has done it. Can you can you break some news like who who should we like be bugging? Well, I, I don't think it's any uh, mystery that every candidate for mayor in St. Paul has talked about raising the minimum wage in St. Paul, for example. But I do think that there are some suburban partners who are interested, and we may be able to get some some movement there as well. And a lot of that is on the advocacy. You know, the advocate groups did a great job organizing in Minneapolis, and I think they they are setting their sights on the region as well. Flip side of this question: Are there things that Minneapolis should learn from? some of our regional partners are there things that you see like some of our suburbs uh, the suburbs are doing really well that you're like wow I'd, I'd really like to uh, us to sort of follow their lead in that you know I think one of the lessons we can learn from suburban partners I think it's every leader in Minneapolis can learn is um you know that interdependence and that relationship building that they are really good at doing. You know, my message to suburbs and to greater Minnesota as a council member, as head of the Intergovernmental Relations Committee when I was council member, as president of the League of Minnesota Cities when I was president, has always been, yes, Minneapolis is incredibly important to the rest of the state. We are Yes, we are the economic engine of the state, but greater Minnesota, the suburbs, everyone else is incredibly important to us and our success, and I know that. And so not always expecting people to come to us, but in Minneapolis, we get to go to other people and, and do that work and build those relationships. I mean, I could give you wonky answers. Give me about, one. Give me a wonky answer. It's the theater of public policy. So. That's true, and you are Tane Danger. Yeah, so. Um, and you are Brandon Boat. Um, that... There are some recycling efforts that have happened in some of our neighbors that I think have been really great and really successful and some outreach work that people have done on, on recycling. Um, some successes people have had with stormwater management just because they have had some bigger difficulties than we've had. Um, yeah, stuff like that. Yeah. That's, has been so exciting. It's like, that's know, one of the values of being part of the Minnesota know if this cities. Is being, but it's like, you know, Wilmer, stormwater capital of Minnesota. 
I don't know if it's Wilmer. Uh, we'll just good job, Wilmer. I just gave you a new title. Yep, um, Tane. I'm going to go with you on that. Uh, one. So, okay. Last question that we've been asking everyone is, uh, and this was Brandon's uh, question idea. Uh, if you could get a, uh, you know, you, in, you you win election, you have your next four years, uh, and you could do one thing that then you get a mulligan on. So, like, if it doesn't work out, you can just take it back, and it's like it never happened. So we're looking for, like, what would be one thing that you would try that would be super high risk but super high reward if it worked out? Uh, Maybe you wouldn't actually do it in real life because it is super high risk and it might not work out. But in this fantasy world, you get a mulligan, so you can say you can say it. I'm laughing because I don't I don't know that there's anything that I haven't wouldn't do that I haven't wanted to try that I haven't just gone ahead and done i mean what if we had like a bigger space needle um take that seattle what if we had a pyramid a pyramid where we could store all of our grain i mean las vegas has a pyramid they have the luxor that's true all right what if we built a giant pyramid downtown uh can they can we can your new campaign symbol just be a pyramid like that can we update your like logo to just be have it be the back of the dollar bill yes sir. yeah exactly yes sir yeah the betsy hodges you know get, I, I it's this nice blue and orange now and then just have a big pyramid sort of an illuminati thing in the yes background. yes with an eye on the top that's good yeah. i think you will do super well in certain parts of Bryn Mawr with that. I, I think we just guarantee that all the conspiracy theorists are going to go back and listen to the entire podcast again. I will encourage them to listen just to, to hear it those, backwards. Just to hear those sub-themes. There is, just to hear there is a sub-themes. secret message, but only for a certain part of it. Um, so yeah, you should listen to it multiple times. And for everybody listening who is an incredibly literal person, I just want you to know I was kidding oh, about the pyramid. Sorry. Um... <laughs> Uh, no, thank you so much for being here. This was such a, a pleasure to, to get to talk to you. And um, I've been saying to everyone, I hope that you're having fun on the campaign trail. I don't, I don't know what to wish someone. Like, I wish you well on campaigning. I, what would you want someone to wish you on the campaign trail? Uh, to win? Uh, well, I'm trying to be a little <laughs> fair. Uh, so, I'm teasing, yeah. I'm teasing. Yes, wishing people well and that the conversations are powerful and great. And what I have found is every campaign, I have been a different person in a better way at the end of it from what I've learned from people and from what I've learned through the process that is once again happening it's an extraordinary thing I I, I recommend it to people all right well thank you so much Mayor Betsy Hodges we uh thanks Tane Danger thanks Brandon Boat thank you for listening these were recorded live at Folklore Folklore is a digital experience company with offices in Minneapolis and San Diego. They specialize in digital strategy, user experience, design, and development for small businesses and large corporations alike. Learn more at folklore.digital. Our music was composed by Keegan Fraley. If you want to find out more about the theater of public policy or come to an upcoming show, you can find us on the web at www.t2p2.net.